Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wild Voices Project with me, Matt Williams. Today, I'm speaking to Chloe Revel. She is the co-founder of Change in Nature, www.changeinnature.org, an organisation that helps people to, quote-unquote, unwind, reconnect and come alive in nature. In this incredible conversation with Chloe, we talk about her career working in government and at the United Nations level on climate change, helping to amplify the voices of small island states and developing countries whose very existence is being put at risk. And then we talk through the pivot her career took after a year spent travelling through Africa and one week spent running a camp with 12 bushmen in the Bwabwata National Park in Namibia. We move on to the decision to set up Change in Nature, why she believes this organisation to give people a radical reconnection with nature is so needed, and the skills training she went through in order to be able to be ready to begin facilitating retreats for people. And our conversation turns to the magic and wonder she helps people to experience with Change in Nature, sharing a feeling that she also experienced during her own childhood growing up on a farm in southern Spain. This is an utterly fascinating conversation, and Chloe's training to tell stories and hold a space for dialogue comes across over the course of this enchanting episode. The Wild Voices Project podcast tells the stories of people saving nature. We're a part of Wild Voices Media, a global production team bridging emerging storytellers with aspiring environmental professionals. Find out more about us at wildvoicesproject.org. Learn more about the global community at wild-voices.org. Now let's dive in. So I'll start where I normally start, which is by asking what role nature, the outdoors, the environment played for you growing up. Yeah, so I um I grew up in southern Spain on um a very rustic uh Spanish cattle farm, which is not at all the image that gets conjured up when you say cattle farm in the UK. Um this is sort of lots of uh sort of gingery, ruddy, brown um, cows and bulls mooching about in enormous expanses of uh, cork oak forest. Um, and the farm itself is right on the edge of a really enormous national park, um, mostly cork oak woodland. Mm. And yes, I had a very, very free range um, childhood wandering around there, really. There were three other kids on the farm. Um, and also, you know, helped by the climate and everything. I basically lived very much more outdoors than indoors for my entire childhood. So I'd come in mostly to sleep and eat a few of my meals in winter. But aside from that, it really was a case of, you know, get up in the morning, um, get straight outside and interact with nature all day long until the sun went down. Um, and yeah, I'm looking right now, actually, my partner Pete has, uh, just made a lamp out of a segment of 
cork oak um, wood that we brought back from Spain this summer that's mm. sitting in the corner of my living room. Um, it's a lovely sensory reminder of that whole whole woodland there. So, yeah, it played a massive, massive part in my upbringing. Um, and I think the lasting thing for me has just been a real sense of feeling enormously at home in nature. Mm-hmm. It never felt like... I mean, there are obviously different environments that I've gone out to, like big mountains and, um, you know, gorges or being out on the ocean that are less familiar natural terrains. But um, in general, my feeling about being out in a woodland or, um, yeah, out in the natural world is just one of feeling probably more at home there in some ways than in a building Mm, yeah Uh, so first of all i I had no idea really that cork woodland was a habitat which is kind of uh you know i learn new things through through these conversations and that's one of the new things that i've just learned um and what what sort of age were you there until were you were you school age when you were there or was this before you had to kind of think about going to school so this is from when i was born um until I mean, I lived there permanently until I was 13 and came over to a boarding school in the UK. Mm-hmm. And would be going over there for all of my long holidays. Yeah. Um, but my parents only left there two years ago when I was 30. So, um, so it's been a very, very present, um, constant kind of place throughout my entire life, really, that yeah. I've kept, um, kept returning to. Yeah, and it's a really, it's a, a cork oak woodland is a really, it's, a, it's pretty amazing. I think people don't really realise what variety of coke, uh, coke oak there is in the world. Um, apparently there are 600 varieties of oak and they look completely different, some of them. And I think a lot of people would look at a cork oak tree and not recognise it as an oak tree because um, its bark is just so radically different to the kind of oak that we're used to seeing in the UK. So, what, so what's it like, stand, what does it look or feel like standing in a cork oak woodland compared to standing in a, you know, a broadleaf woodland in, in England? Are there, what's the bird mix like? You know, is it, is it lots of mixed fo- like foliage and different shrubs or is it very much just the cork oak trees? Um, the cork dominates really it's it's one of the only trees that is viable in really arid areas um, like southern Spain and also the reason it's been so successful is because the cork is actually um, an adaptation in the bark to protect itself from forest fires Mm -hmm. so a lot of the other trees get knocked out because forest fires are very common in southern Spain but the the cork forms this incredible insulating layer against the heat of the fire, and the core of the the tree inside shrinks away from the cork, um, and it sort of creates a sort of thermos flask type setup where there's a layer of air between the wood inside that shrunk, and then an insulating layer of air that keeps some of the heat away, um, and then the really thick layer of Uh, bark which is more or less inflammable so yeah in in these woodlands generally the 
the main tree there that um, that is prevalent and able to survive in that very arid environment is the cork oak. So they are quite single species woodlands mm. um, in terms of the tree life. And they're much, much smaller and more stunted than the oaks that we're used to seeing in the UK. They don't grow to be particularly high. Um, and they've got quite a different uh, leaf shape as well. But the amazing thing is that actually in southern Spain, cork oak cultivation is still, it's one of the last remaining um, really small small scale cottage industries and it's not been mechanized at all so it's done the harvesting is all done by hand with people um going and chopping layers off of bar of cork oak off the tree um in seven year cycles right and then taking the getting donkeys and other quite old school forms of transportation <laughs> to take the cork out of the woodland and it's amazing when you look at go into these woodlands because you can see you can see 14 years marked on every tree yeah. so they've just been harvested the the main because they don't take it off all of the branches they just take it off the main trunk so the main trunk will if it's freshly harvested will have this really really almost purple um, underlayer of bark and then just above it, you can see seven-year-old bark that's now gone um, sort of quite reddy brown. And then the oldest layer that's 14 years old that's still on the uh, branches is almost sort of mushroomy grey. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's quite a beautiful thing to witness the passage of time on these trees. And is this harvesting something that was done alongside the cattle on on the farm you were on yeah yeah and was that something you got involved in um no i've never been never been involved with the harvesting it's just something that's happened mm. happened around me that i've witnessed through the years and is cork oak woodland is it particularly rare or under threat or is it pretty pretty common in spain or elsewhere it's um it's quite common in Spain and quite common in Portugal, mm. but I understand that um, I think there's a WWF campaign at the moment actually about trying to encourage people to buy wine bottles that have proper um, cork corks in them rather than metal caps or plastic corks uh, because I think in Portugal in particular. I'm trying to remember the exact figure, but I think it's something like 80% of um, cork cultivation goes towards wine bottle corks. Right. Um, because it was quite a major rural industry um, in Portugal in particular, there's been historically really great protection of cork oak forests there because it's one of the last remaining forms of um, very local agricultural industry and as we've shifted more and more towards metal um caps or plastic corks um those forests have come more under under threat because they're less valued economically right so 
yeah, that they they do cover quite big expanses in Portugal and Spain. Um, but I think re- retaining that sort of link to the local economy and helping rural people subsist from it is quite a key part to the conservation of those ecosystems. Mm. And so there are ecosystems, there are other species that depend on those cork oak trees as well. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm not an expert actually on... Um, on which species they maintain mm. but um yeah i understand from that wwf campaign in particular that there are there are a huge number of different species that are supported by an oak tree i think it's similar to in the uk the oaks quite an important player in an ecosystem and a lot of different insects and bugs and therefore birds that feed on those bugs um all rely fundamentally on that oak being there to keep the whole chain going. Mm. So what were the what were the kind of skills that you learned from spending so much time outdoors as a in your childhood or what were the kind of what are some of the strongest memories from that time that you have? I'd describe it more as a really um I don't know if I'd describe it in terms of skills. I suppose I've got, I have got some sort of practical skills around, you know, building dens and shelters and lighting fires and, um, you know, I guess what would now be badged as bushcraft skills <laughs> um, from spending a lot of time outside. Mm. But I think for me, the major thing really has just been having a very, um wonderful kind of sensory relationship to the natural world and finding a lot of magic in it and um finding it both a very therapeutic place to be and also a place with infinite possibilities for you know getting up to all sorts of things and um yeah and relating to it with a real sense of wonder so yeah, as I said, I mean, for me, it's it's really been my home, being in that kind of woodland, but also my playground. And I think that's the lasting thing, really, is I think it'd be hard to sum up as a particular skill, but it's a way of relating that not necessarily everyone has. I think a lot of people, maybe who've grown up in different kinds of environments, associate nature with, um, you know, walking a dog along around the edge of a field Mm. and don't necessarily think a lot of people think nature's boring basically (laughs) Um, (laughs) probably not your listeners on this podcast but I think there are an awful lot of people out there who are used to um, other forms of stimulation and being entertained and um, you know going to the cinema or going to a bar or going to a gig or, um, you know, doing very human-centred pursuits, which I love too. But I think a lot of people don't necessarily, if they haven't had that time to really explore and build up their own relationship with, um, with nature and with other species, they don't necessarily have that sense of playfulness and enjoyment of it in the same way and I'd say that that's the main thing that I got from spending a childhood 
mucking around in the woods and in puddles and building dens. Do you remember? Do, do you remember a particular a particular time or day when you found that magic or that wonder in in the outdoors when you were when you were living in Spain? Yeah, I think. Well, um, one thing that I got really really into was um i i loved for me it was quite a physical experience out there as well of kind of borrowing different materials that had fallen onto the woodland floor and um yeah building things building shelters and i got really carried away with it and i'd spend kind of days and days and days and weeks um sort of going out and crafting and using my hands and really kind of nestling in and making making a shelter out there and um I maybe this is relating more to the to the feeling at home in nature rather than the wonder uh, aspect actually yeah yeah but anyway I remember building this particular den that I'd been working on for weeks and I got um I'd woven all of the walls for it from branches that were then woven around other sticks that I put into the ground. And I remember making an entire guttering system out of this cork oak that I'd taken off some branches. So there yeah. it was a perfect, like semicircular sort of tube um, that I layered so that the rainwater would cascade down from one kind of segment to another and wound its way around the. Uh, the entire den and then came into the den and in it I'd taken a piece of bark um, that had grown over kind of one of the lumpy bits of a tree and it formed this perfect cork bowl and so all of the water would gather in there and I was probably about seven years old so this is my version of rainwater rainwater harvesting. It's pretty sophisticated for seven. (laughs) (laughs) So I really loved that but I think yeah, I, I think I'm trying to think back to then in a, a moment of particular wonder. I'm, well, I'm struggling to. How, how did it feel when you completed that den that you'd been working on for so long? Um, yeah, it felt well. It, it felt amazing to complete it, but equally, um, I think for me, a, a, a project like that's never quite finished. It's just the joy actually is in the making. Mm. It's not the final product, so. As soon as something like that would be finished, I'd um, I'd move on to the next one. Yeah, and be making something else and interacting with something else. But I think I'm trying to think now of actually no. So my my source of wonder, um, thinking back, was something else that was really delightful that my mum and I used to do together every year, which was um, we had this annual ritual of going up to um, this swimming pool that my neighbours had that they used to let go um, and not put any kind of treatment into over the winter. And uh, in the autumn, it would fill up with frog spawn. And we'd go up with my old baby bath and and take out, um, you know, fill it up with water and fill it up with some plants and um, a bit of soil in the bottom and we'd bring it down to our house and then for all of the you know for weeks after that I'd come back from 
school every day and check on the progress of the frog spawn and watch them as they turned into tadpoles and watch the tadpoles as they sprouted legs and then as they dropped their tail and then as they turned into these swimming frogs and then um, as they climbed out the edge of the, the baby bath one day and leapt off um, into the trees and it's absolutely mesmerizing every year watching um, the evolution of this creature as it morphed from being a tiny egg into being a leaping frog. So I think that was, yeah, that was a real source of wonder for me. Mm. Yeah, I've, um, I've reared uh, butterflies from caterpillar before uh, when I was <laughs> not, <laughs> I was going to say when I was younger, I wasn't that young. It wasn't that long ago, actually. <laughs> I guess that's part of it. You still retain that inner child and it's quite a strong, quite a strong force, even when you're a bit older like I am. Um, but yeah, that, that equally is a sort of fascination, uh, a sense of fascination and wonder to just watch this process that you don't necessarily normally see and to watch, yeah, that natural cycle unfurling in front of your eyes. Yeah, exactly. And and you did that with your mum, but it also sounds like you did a lot of your dem building and other exploring on your own. So would you say there was, uh, and I'm not, this isn't meant pejoratively, but would you say there was a lot of solitude as a child as well? Um, a mix, a mix of solitude. So I'm an only child, mm. so I did inevitably spend quite a bit of time on my own, um, kind of messing around in nature. And... Um, but also a lot of time with, so another kid who grew up on the farm next to me was two weeks younger than me, Miguelito. And, uh, so we were sort of best chums running around the farm and doing a lot of that den building and trying to leap onto the back of cows and climbing up tall trees and all, you know, spying on our neighbors and all of that kind of mischief um, together as well so I think it was a good balance between having some really wonderful contemplative imaginative time when I was just wandering around and really in my own um, sort of nature inspired fairy tale and and then a lot of the more playful kind of messing around with uh, with Miguelito as well mm. yeah and then, um, so I think you and I were first introduced when you were working for, correct me if this, this is wrong, when you were working for the Aldersgate Group, which is a, an environmental mm-hmm. organisation, right? Yeah. So what, what were the steps between this childhood fas- fascination with the outdoors and working in the environmental sector later in, a bit later in your life? And w- were, were the two strongly connected or, you know, was there a... Was there a time in between when you weren't so weren't so interested in the environment? I think um, the environment has always been well. I, yeah, the woodland and the environment has always been for me a very um, important place to retreat retreat to from whatever was going on in my life um, at all stages. But in terms of my um, kind of career focus or what I was occupying a lot of my time thinking about that did shift in my teenage years. And I became a lot more, um, a lot more preoccupied with the human realm. So I did, 
uh, A-level politics and found it absolutely fascinating to think about the different ways in which humans had organised themselves and the ways that they decided to make um, decisions collectively in different societies and all kinds of, um, you know, the different ideologies and ways that we understand the world and how we go about um, having societal discussions where different ideologies coexist. And so I got really caught up um, with the human species and how we were organising our affairs and went on to uh, study politics at university mm-hmm. and um, really enjoyed that. And so when I graduated, I decided to join the government and um, get involved in policy making and really get a good close-up look at how decisions are being made in our society um, in the UK, which felt like a really exciting thing to do after three years of reading a lot of social theory and a lot of political theory and thinking about these things in the abstract. I really wanted to get up close to um, where decisions are being made and understand how it really worked in practice. Mm. So in that, during that time, I wasn't specifically um, necessarily thinking about the environment, but of course these, these things have a way of finding their way back to you or you finding your way back to them. Yeah. And when I joined the civil service, the first team that I went into was... Um, a team that was looking at how government could use its enormous buying power to um, promote a more environmentally friendly um, marketplace, I suppose. So how we could use government procurement and set certain environmental standards in government's buying decisions to to make sure that environmental goods and services um, were being supported through government demand and that we were setting basic standards that would then cascade out to the rest of the economy. Um, And at that time, prior to that, I think I'd had quite an innocent, um, very enchanted relationship with the natural world, where actually where I'd been, because I'd grown up in a national park that was very well protected, I don't think I'd really been exposed that much to all of the different threats that were going on to different natural environments around the world. And so it was really during that process of working in government and being exposed to a lot of the bigger issues, in particular climate change, that suddenly it was this moment of of coming to and of realisation and of enormous um, fear and pain and realising that the things that I most hold dear about the world were massively under threat. And so as I came towards the end of the the first job that I did in government, which lasted a year, it was just in the run-up to the Copenhagen Climate Change Conference. Mm-hmm. And um, and I, I really, that's where I wanted to be. I just, I wanted to find any way possible to somehow be part of that discussion and to really understand um you know what we were doing about this um internationally to try and tackle that issue and 
as fortune had it, there was a job that came up in the UK's negotiating team um, to the UN climate negotiations. Mm. So I applied for that and um, got that job and then had the most incredible two years being really exposed to what the global conversation is um, or was back then um, on climate change and what, what the human response to it is at an international level. And so, so you you then ended up being in Copenhagen for the talks? So I wasn't in Copenhagen. Um, I just joined about a month before right. the Copenhagen climate talks. So I had a very strange experience of watching that particular conference from the perspective of being on the home team, um, you know, writing urgent briefings on matters that were coming up that the people in Copenhagen themselves didn't have the headspace to think about. Mm -hmm. And that was a very odd experience because as the talks went on, there was less and less communication between the team on the ground and the home team. And so we we really didn't know what was going on for the last few days at all. I think we were in the same position as pretty much anyone else, kind of constantly refreshing our uh, BBC and other news outlet websites to try and find out what on earth was happening. Um, so no, I wasn't at that one, but I went to, after um, Copenhagen, I got involved in this um, really amazing group um, called the Cartagena Dialogue, which was a really unprecedented um, alliance between a set of developed countries and developing countries who all felt that they had more, more in common with each other than either did with the major players within their uh, traditional negotiating blocks. Mm -hmm. So the developing countries that felt that actually they had more in common with the UK than let's say they did at that time with um, China and India, which at the time were in very different uh, places with with regards to climate change than they are now. So, so what these countries had in common was their collective willingness to tackle the problem. Exactly. And they felt that um, they they basically recognised that the positions, that the, the kind of global treaty that they were pushing for um, was more similar to the kind of global treaty that the UK was pushing for than, um, than the big players within their formal negotiating block. And so there was this effort to bridge, because traditionally it had been a very divisive um, political process at the UN where there really was massive separation between developed and developing countries and quite a crude, arbitrary line about where you know, which side a country fell on. Um, but so this, after Copenhagen, after the, the treaty that everyone was hoping for didn't quite happen, um, was an attempt to try and recognise what common interests existed across the divide and to try and forge some kind of unity where previously there'd been um, a very stark division. And so I, I got involved with all of that and was helping um, those countries to meet on a on a quarterly basis and was then going to I went to the the conference um the following year in Cancun um and saw how that new negotiating dynamic played out there where all these 
networks and relationships have been built. So, yeah, so that's how I kind of came back, I suppose, to the environment was through climate change. And just to stay on on the climate negotiations for a second, do you feel yeah. that 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 alliance did you did you say it was called the Cartina? Cartagena dialogue. Ah, Cartagena so it's named dialogue. after the the city in Colombia where we first met. Cartagena. Do you feel that that has had a role in amplifying the voices of developing countries over the past few years and it result and helped us to get the agreement that we now do have? Yeah, massively. Um, I think it was, it provided a, it, it only ever had, you know, somewhere between 20 and 30 countries involved. It was a platform where um, a lot of smaller countries, like let's say Malawi or, um, you know, some of the island states, like the Marshall Islands, mm-hmm. had not traditionally been um properly heard within the UN because there are some voices within the group of 77 that were so dominant that a lot of those other voices would get drowned out mm. um, and and so this act of coming together and building a real sense of understanding mutual understanding and trust um between those countries and where they could really take the microphone and be heard uh, in a much smaller setting, I think really emboldened some of them to play massive leadership roles. And that I think that was particularly seen in the case of uh, Colombia and Costa Rica. They suddenly came out being these um, incredibly forceful, self-confident countries within the negotiations who did a lot to to push the level of ambition. And actually in um, one of the big dynamics that played out just now in in Paris when we got the Paris Agreement was um, the this thing called the um, High Ambition Coalition, which mm-hmm. is a very high-profile coalition of countries from across all these different groupings across the world coming together and saying we want a high ambition agreement um and that coalition really grew out of the cartagena dialogue which had been something that had happened more at the government official level but it was it was that groundwork of building that trust where previously there'd been suspicion that laid the foundations for these ministers to work together on a really high profile basis in paris and i think they were quite instrumental in um, keeping things on track when they were wavering. And that's been crucial, right, because the Paris Agreement, which we now have and which comes into force in 2020, has this goal of holding temperature rises to at most two degrees and, quote-unquote, pursuing efforts to hold them to 1.5 degrees. And that difference is crucial because the difference between 1.5 degrees and two degrees of temperature rise puts at risk the very existence of some of these these developing small island state countries which might end up underwater and therefore their well their biodiversity but more importantly their pe- their people's very existence and homes are at risk from from that lack of high ambition aren't they yeah exactly so it's so it's so important that those voices are are heard and taken seriously 
So it was amazing seeing um, Minister Tony de Bruyne, who sadly passed away um, now, but seeing him in Paris, he was the foreign minister for the Marshall Islands. Mm. And seeing the diplomatic clout, um, you know, that 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 man and that country had within a forum like the UN, when it's just the most minuscule um, set of islands that probably, unless you work in climate change or um, in shipping, no one has ever heard of before. <laughs> you know, it's quite remarkable, <laughs> yeah. really. Yeah. Um, that they were one of the one of the big players and being taken very seriously. So you found your time then, by the sounds of it, working within government quite quite effective because you've been part of what's been really important change. So you found your time and the machinery of government to be quite effective at making change happen. Is that is that fair to say? I'd I'd say I'd say I did, but um, the frustrating thing with working in government is that. Um, of course, they're always everything that's agreed is always open to policy reversals. Mm. So, you know, like we're seeing now, um, in particular, I suppose, in the United States, you can build up for 20 years and, and get a global treaty on climate change and um, have all of the stars aligned and all of the right political forces in place and get it signed. And then you have an election and one of the, you know, the world's biggest economy basically decides to pull out of what was just negotiated. <laughs> so, you know, there is it. It is it is an incredibly powerful thing to um, to work in government and to be able to witness and be part of conversations on that level, um, and and to drive change. And change really does it does come from that level in many ways you know the it's not a coincidence that the price of renewable technologies has gone down massively that is due to countries like germany deciding that they will um bring a lot more renewable energy on stream and creating that demand and through volume suddenly it becomes an established um industry and it can be offered more cheaply and suddenly you've changed the whole balance of economics mm. so you know it is it is a very effective um level to operate at but can be devastating because of these reversals um and also as an individual it's it can be quite a challenging space to operate within because you're part of a massive um institution and um i guess as a necessary part of bringing coherence to, you know, what does the UK government think about X, Y, or Z? A line is is agreed, and that's the government line. And if you're a civil servant, um, that's the line, you know, that you take. And so it can be quite a strange environment in that respect as well, where there are moments that maybe you feel this is just absolutely not right, what's going on here, or... Um, yeah. Can, can you think of an example of a time when that happened? Well, I think it's not so much that, you know, this policy isn't right or that um, 
I'm not really signaling anything particularly shady, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. It's more that, for example, one of the things that I found very, very challenging about um, working within the UN process was that um, quite often when there'd been a moment of massive progress, there was a sort of a kickback, a kind of buyer's remorse moment in the months afterwards where everyone wondered if they'd overpromised and had gone too far and whether they could actually deliver and there was a real putting the brakes on things and um, this really came up for me after um, the climate negotiations in Cancun which had made massive progress and actually a lot of what countries had attempted to agree in Copenhagen they they quietly got on with and agreed in Cancun and then the immediate negotiating session that followed after that um, in Bangkok, there was this awful atmosphere of countries wondering if they'd gone too far. And the collective manifestation of that was that um, they spent about five days negotiating what the agenda for the meeting would be. Mm. Um, rather than getting on with the negotiations. And it was just a way of kind of... Um, yeah, of of kind of slowing things down and a sort of cooling off period, I suppose. Which, to put it in context, when you've only got two weeks for the entire conference, taking that many days out of it just to decide the agenda <laughs> yeah. has a pretty big impact. And of course, the, I think this is where it's quite challenging as an individual, and particularly, I think, as a young individual who maybe hasn't lived through these cycles mm. before and doesn't have the long view of seeing that this is just how it works and you have to ride it out mm. um i think it's very challenging to be in that kind of formal setting and a part of that kind of um formal institution where you know you just have to keep saying well the uk's line is you know that we should do this and have this agenda item and proceed on this basis and every part of you as a human wants to just stand up in that room and say you know what are we doing <laughs> and just relate to people on a much more human basis that is not um where you're not playing your role as a calm and collected civil servant who just has to repeat the UK line you really want to get up on a desk and get a microphone and look at everyone in the eye and say to them you know this is an absolutely existential issue for our species and a lot of you in this room aren't even going to be around when a lot of the things hit um I I am I'm younger you know 40 years younger than a lot of you um what are we doing? We have to start talking. But so it's, I found that very difficult. I found it a very constraining environment where there wasn't much space um, to really express or process what I felt on a more human level. Mm. And I think the discussions between people there, sometimes it's necessary to be in a very analytical policy wonky um kind of realm but i felt that a lot of the conversations were poorer for not um for not bringing our humanity into them mm -hmm. 
So I want to I want to leave plenty of time to talk about change in nature, but I suppose maybe just get there briefly via um, your work with Aldersgate Group, which I assume came after your civil service work. And Aldersgate Group is well, you you can correct me, but is is a is an organisation that tries to bring businesses together to influence the government from the outside on environmental issues. Yeah. So yeah. So after I. Um, I decided to leave the government after five years and see what it was like to try and bring about change from the outside um, and join the Aldersgate group, as you say, which is this sort of uh, alliance between not just businesses, but businesses, NGOs and high profile figures mm. um, like MPs to try and b- bring pressure to bear on government, I suppose, to adopt particular positions um that were more ambitious in terms of environmental regulation um and that's where i met andy who i have now co-founded change in nature with um so yeah so that i i only did that for a year it was definitely it was a fascinating job kind of looking back at government where i'd been for five years from the outside and um you know going into meetings as a sort of external stakeholder and definitely having a much freer voice to um you know to to express where we felt that government was going in the right direction and where it wasn't and to speak to the press about that and although it was still an institutional voice actually we were a very small team um, at the core of the Aldersgate group and generally the organisations and individuals we worked with were very happy to go along with our advice about what to say. So suddenly I went from being in a um, in a team of 100 that was part of a department of 1,000, which was one of the smallest departments in the civil service anyway, the Department of Energy and Climate Change, mm. to being in a team of four people. And... Um, and kind of being the lead person on a lot of different policy issues where um, where it's like, right, okay, what what are we going to say about this? What's the Aldersgate Group's view? Um, and obviously going around all of our different stakeholders and um, getting their sign up to it, but really having a much stronger personal ability to um, shape what I felt we ought to be saying about things. Mm. So that was where you met Andy, who you founded Change in Nature with, yeah. and I'll I'll explain maybe in the intro to this to this episode what Change in Nature is, kind of in a couple of sentences. Before before we dive into what Change in Nature does, why did you why did you decide to set it up, and where where did the idea come from, and I suppose also why did you decide to transition your life or your work at least out of this very political focus which you'd had for five or six years into something I suppose much more about direct connection with the environment for people and for yourself yeah well it was it was um it was an interesting journey I um I after the Aldersgate group I thought yeah this is this is good but actually it's still not quite right there's something about this whole um this whole way of of intersecting with environmental change that is not a hundred percent resonating for me. 
And although it's nourishing me hugely at the intellectual level, there's something missing. Um, and so I, I went off, I left the Aldersgate group and spent a year just trying to explore really what it was, what direction I wanted to head in. And I went home for a few months to my um, to my Corcoke woodland and spent mm-hmm. time reflecting there. And um, and then I went off to Southern Africa um, with my partner Pete, and we spent six months um, kind of travelling around, not not constantly on the move at all. We spent three months in Namibia a couple of months in Mozambique and a month in Zanzibar. And in each place, we were really trying to um, just draw inspiration from different projects and offer our skills to uh, different people and organizations there. But for me, the time that we spent in Namibia was hugely pivotal because we um, spent the three months living in this national park in the northeast of Namibia mm-hmm. uh, called Bobwata National Park. It's just on the really thin um, panhandle strip at the top of the country. And um, the people who live within that national park are the most recent, um, aside from the uncontacted tribes that still remain in certain parts of the Amazon and so on, these these people are one of the last people to give up hunter-gathering as a way of life. Mm. And they'd been living completely as hunter-gatherers um, until two generations ago. And so their relationship, obviously, to the natural world is really quite remarkably different to, um, to what most people's relationship is in the UK. And... Um, we were trying to find ways of sort of making ourselves useful to them in some way without coming in with loads of preconceived ideas about, you know, what they might need. So really our first month there was very, um, just very reflective and we got into lots of conversations and tried to meet people and have chats and understand what their circumstances were and um, at no point really saying, you know, well, can we do this, that or the other for you in our voluntary role? We were just very much in listening mode, hearing about how we might be able to help. And they said, um, some of the young people there who we met, we made a few very good friendships. They said to us, we're actually trying to find a way for it to be viable for us to live in this environment um, now because we are not permitted to hunt anymore because it's a national park. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not possible for us to live as hunter-gatherers. So we're having to completely reinvent what our relationship is to this land and how it's possible to subsist from it in um, in, a, in a cash economy, basically, where we can't just trade or bring each other meat and uh, gathered fruits from the bush anymore. And so it felt like going right back to the to a moment that is long gone now in our society, but it's this moment of departure um, from people whose lives are completely intricately intertwined with the environment they live in. All of the resources that they need to live come from that environment Mm. to this moment of separation where suddenly they were having to get cash to trade 
to buy food to bring in from imported places. Right. And we're bringing in currency as a way of exchanging goods and services with each other and trying to find other sources of um, economic income and meaning for themselves. And so it, it was an incredible thing to be um, a part of. And what these young people said to us was, you know, we really, we really know we've got huge amounts of knowledge about wildlife tracking and about plant uses in the national park. And what we'd really like to do is to offer um, tourist experiences where we take people around and we, you know, we show them how to trace a particular animal and how they can interpret these um, marks on the ground and we show them the plants that we use and so on. But we've never really met um, a Western tourist before. So we've just got no idea, you know, what what it even means really to offer a tourism experience. Um, and so what Pete and I ended up doing was going off into uh, this one of the biodiversity hotspots of the National Park where the Bushmen aren't actually allowed to live um, to do a, a week-long camp with them where we were all, there were 12 of them and two of us, and we lived there under canvas for a week together and cooked all of our meals on a fire together and woke up when the sun rose and spent all day with them taking us around the National Park and showing us um, what they knew, with us giving them feedback on on um, not just us actually. We we set it up in a very peer to peer way where everyone would give feedback to the person who just guided an experience on you know how um, how good their storytelling had been, how warmly they'd welcomed us, how good they'd been at timekeeping how well they'd answered our questions, you know, all sorts of different things that yeah. you have as an expectation, I suppose, when you're a Western tourist. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and it, was, it was just an absolutely pivotal experience for me, sitting around a fire with 12 young people who had grown up in this kind of environment, who are still living in, um, you know, houses made out of sticks and mud, who have never seen the ocean, who have no real prospect of earning enough money to fly to another country, you know, ever, um, who most of them go to school until they're about 10 or 11 and then completely leave the education system after that, and who've just had utterly, utterly different lives to me and have completely different um sense of how the world works and what life's about and what their aspirations are and yet sitting around a fire with them um every evening and just with no artificial lighting or you know no distractions just sitting around a crackling fire and really talking to each other surrounded by the sound of all these incredible birds in the trees and um sort of sheltered by the the big canopy of the trees i just we reached a level of interpersonal connection that was quite incredible it was a, a true you know encounter between people with very different interests and 
I just thought this is so interesting because I have never, ever reached this level of um, interpersonal understanding and empathy and connection in a UN conference centre. You know, it yeah. took... It, it was just thinking about the rooms within which... And even in the spaces where people were in those that, those spaces I was talking about before of the Cartagena dialogue, much smaller collective, um, people trying to build trust and empathy with each other and see where their commonality of interest lay, despite having very different um, circumstances. There was something about wearing a suit, having to turn on a microphone to speak, harsh strip lighting, <laughs> um, rooms often without windows and you're talking about the natural world and you can't even see a plant Yeah. Um, there's just something so dehumanising about that kind of environment that it acts as a barrier for people to really really connect and understand where each other's coming from and so for me this experience in this national park of running this week long camp I just thought there's something there's, there's really something in this. And what I really, really want to do is to try and open up um, the possibility for mutual understanding and connection and empathy um, among humans, but also a sense of connection to the wider ecosystems that we are actually a part of, even when we forget it. Mm. Um because I feel like that's what's really lacking in our society and that's what's really lacking even among professional environmentalists whose entire life is dedicated to protecting the natural world. Quite often their day-to-day -day is like mine was in London, sitting behind a computer, reading a report, um, following the latest news on Twitter, sending out a press release, having a very, very heady analytical strategic conversation you just described my job <laughs> in a neon lit office room and it's not it's not to say that there isn't a place for that i really don't want to give the impression that i'm saying that there isn't a place for that because yeah. as i mentioned earlier you know i've worked in government and it is a massive lever for change and it's incredible what it's possible to achieve and i have huge respect for the people who um, who do that day in, day out, and it is absolutely essential. But I just think that we've become analytical to the point of um, treating a lot of existential issues like they're really fascinating intellectual jigsaw puzzles and the whole realm of relating to each other on a more heartfelt, empathetic level um, is is really excluded from those kinds of conversations and spaces. And I think there's a limit to what, where we can get to and what we can achieve and what we can do when we're only operating um, from that headspace. Can you, can, you can you explain a little bit more what you mean by that level of interpersonal connection that you achieved during that week that you spent um, with that group of, of people? And what... Yeah, what do you mean by a level of interpersonal connection that you hadn't really felt with people before? What what does that feel like or how does that manifest itself? 
I suppose because of the role that I had within um, within the UK government and the UN when I was working there, I did actually have a chance to um, encounter and spend time with a lot of people in, um, you know, developing countries where they have very different interests and needs to, let's say, what the UK might have on climate change. So, um, you know, I'd spent time with government delegates uh, working in Malawi and so on. And on a certain level, on an intellectual level, I understood why... um, I understood why they might be coming from a different place in terms of, you know, what, let's say, issues around equity and fairness. Like, what, what is it, what is reasonable to ask them to do compared to, let's say, what the UK might do? Or with the, in the case of the small island states, I think it's, it's possible to understand intellectually that this is existential for them, you know, that their island might literally disappear and that they might not have a place to live. I can understand that in my mind, but am I really relating to it on a heartfelt level of actually getting what that means, that some people might might not actually have anywhere on the earth that they can call home anymore? You know, looking them in the eye as people and really feeling that empathy and it I felt like the spaces and the conversations that I'd been in previously even though I understood that in an on an intellectual level I'm not sure that I don't think that most of those kinds of spaces and conversations had really um really made me connect on an empathetic level and the difference with spending time with the Bushmen and hearing their story about, um, you know, how their ancestors has basically been living there. They, they can trace it back. It's, it's pretty much the cradle of humanity. You know, they can trace ancestry back to that place um, for 200,000 years that they've been living as hunter-gatherers there. They're the, the descendants of the people who didn't leave Africa um, didn't leave that particular corner of Africa and hearing the pain in their voice about the way that their relationship with um, with their ancestral lands is changing because of let's say government regulation that has turned that place into a national park and now they're banned from exercising um their traditional way of life. There was something about being an environment across the fire and really being able to look these people in the eye and listen and hear them properly that moved me at such a deeper level um, than, than conversations that I'd had in other spaces where I was inhabiting a professional role and was in a very formalized space. And I think it makes a big difference as to how willing you are to compromise 
um, you know, your way of life for them or try and meet them in the middle or um, just conceive of things from their point of view. I think it's much easier to, um, you know, reach joint agreements between different cultures if we have a higher degree of empathy about where everybody's coming from. And coming coming back to the theme of what change in nature does, you know, hypothetically someone could have put you down in a room at a table with those with those 12 Bushmen and got them to tell you the exact same stories, but it may not have had the same effect because you'd also been spending the week with them showing you the wildlife and the places where they lived and telling you stories about those things as well, and that all provided the context for those evening campfire conversations yeah exactly i think and i think there's in that case there was obviously a thing about me going to their home and them showing me Mm. their home and it it being very striking the relationship that they had there but i actually think there's a more universal thing at play as well um and it's something that we see time and time again on the retreats that we run which are now based down in dartmoor um and i i think that you take almost anybody regardless of the upbringing they've had and whether it's been in nature or not um you invite almost anybody into that kind of space where there's no electricity there are no mains connections that water's fetched from a stream there's no noise pollution there's no light pollution um there's a very biodiverse natural environment where you know it's not a plant a plantation woodland it's it's proper broadleaf ancient woodland and you sit them around a fire and i I strongly believe that there's just something um, that happens to people in that space where our bodies relax, we kind of let go of all of the status-based ideas that we have about ourselves and I've got this job and this is why I'm important or or not important and this person relates to me in this professional way and all the kind of um, very transactional forms of relating that we've built up um, that quite often come into play in our professional settings. And people just are capable of sharing with each other and empathising with each other on a level that is, I think it's unattainable in a lot of the urban environments that we've set up Mm. and so I don't think it's just about you come and visit me and understand where I come from um I think people can come together on neutral territory in a wood that doesn't neither one of them has a particularly strong connection to but there's something about tapping back into the fact that actually even in our societies you know we've only been practicing agriculture for however long it is, 20,000 years, I can't remember exactly, but in terms of the length of our species, um, a very, very short period of time. And actually, for the vast majority of our history, we have been exactly in that kind of environment, sitting around a fire 
and sharing stories with each other. And I think even when people come in and don't feel instantly comfortable with it, um, maybe on their first evening, there's something deeper about their their sense of um, their sense of being at home in nature that comes out regardless of who you are, and that enables you to to open up and relate in a way that is very much deeper mm. than what is normal for people. Um, just before we carry on, I just want to check that you are okay to carry on for just a little bit longer. Is that okay? Yeah, yep, that's fine. Cool. If you want to take a two-minute break, by the way, that we can do that and edit it out. No, it's okay. Okay, um, cool. Okay. Um, so, so I wanted to ask about... Um, the connection between your experience in Namibia and how that led you to then setting up Change in Nature, and you've already described a lot of that, but I also wanted to ask a little bit about kind of the the more technical nitty-gritty of setting up an organisation like Change in Nature and how you went about how you went about doing that side of things as well and whether that was a new experience from you or whether you had whether you had someone working with you who had a lot of experience doing that and mm -hmm. you know, how that bit worked too. Okay, where shall I start? Um, so I suppose I suppose maybe with the more technical nitty gritty thing. So you so actually no no let's 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 just make sure all the dots are joined up. So you'd had this experience in Namibia, which you've said is pivotal, and then were there thoughts going through your head at this point of taking this experience and trying to do something similar in the UK for people? Yes, I think the first thing wasn't even a. A concept of oh I could do this there or the the very first thing that struck me was wow whatever has just happened here it feels absolutely right mm -hmm. for me um there was something about the practical combination of setting up a camp you know being outdoors every day lighting a fire cooking everything on the fire fetching the water um from the river boiling it off there's and and being immersed in this group of people that I guess it was bringing back for me certain elements of my childhood um and there was just something about it that I felt so natural and at home in doing that um in contrast to how I'd quite often felt in in offices and in office jobs even when they were very rewarding and um, intellectually stimulating, there was just something very natural in my body that was like, yes, I feel absolutely energized by this. Mm. Um, and I didn't know exactly what to do with it um, initially, and but sort of just had it there as a seed that had been planted. And then when we came back to Europe from our um, trip in Africa, I thought, right, okay, the first thing is to just try and connect with some people in the UK who maybe are offering something similar or some kind of experience like this who I can learn from because I've definitely got a lot to learn to make this transition. Um, and it was, yeah, it was actually just one of those amazing things where I happened to be on Facebook one day <laughs> and um, <laughs> loath as I am to credit them they it's a pretty useful platform on occasion 
And this um, this friend of mine shared something saying this organisation in Devon called Wildwise uh, is looking for a seasonal assistant to work with them for the entire season, and they basically run nature connection camps for people right on Dartmoor. Um, and I had a bit of a look at their website and was just like, yes, brilliant, this is great. And the brilliant thing about it was that as part of the exchange, um, so it was a voluntary role being their seasonal assistant, but in exchange, uh, they run this course called Call of the Wild, which is a professional training course for people wanting to become outdoor facilitators. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I thought, perfect, I'll get to learn from all of the experience of being on camp and get training support from them on this course. So um, so we sort of structured our return to the UK lives around that anchor, really, and moved to Bristol um, so I could be close to Devon and um, worked it out so that I could do part-time climate change consultancy work in a way that was quite seasonally variable and would allow me a lot more time off in the summer when all of the camps were going on. And I sort of set myself up to be able to make this shift and was really lucky how things fell into place. And I was offered work that was very accommodating to my wanting to retrain in this way. And um, so that's what what I did. And um, after I did a year, really, with them and it was at that point after a year after I'd finished the training course which was incredible and um, done all this volunteering with Wildwise and was starting to really get a sense of okay I that most of the work they do is with kids so I was thinking actually a lot of what I've done with them it would be equally beneficial to adults and I don't really see anyone offering it to adults mm. a lot of our um, kind of nature work in the UK is very directed at children, sort of children's summer camps, forest school, uh, that kind of thing. There's not that much provision out there really for for adults um, to come and be on a camp in that way. Um, so starting to piece it together in my mind and thinking that what I'd really love to do is to offer this kind of experience to other environmental professionals who maybe through years of being in um, London and working in, in strategic positions had lost some of their own felt connection to nature. Mm-hmm. Just as I was having that thought, in steps Andy from the Aldersgate group back into my life, who'd been on his own journey for a year. And, um, and he said, I'm just on my way to Devon to do this course called Court <laughs> Wild. <laughs> because I want to become a nature-based facilitator. Uh, So I was like, right, okay, that's interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You're not going to believe this, but I've just finished that. Um, Why don't we set something up together where we offer, you know, we're both from the same or very similar professional background. Why don't we set something up where we offer these kinds of experiences to... um, to urban-based professionals like us, be they environmentalists or not, but anyway, people who who found themselves being increasingly tied to their desk and cut off from the natural world, who want to rebuild that relationship, um, and who are used to networking in 
you know, in these settings where swapping business cards and having very brief conversations and lots of mingling and not being able to quite get to the heart of things who might really appreciate an opportunity to get out for 48 hours and really speak uninterruptedly with other people Mm. um so so that's what we decided to do and that's what we've done and had either of you set up a business before no so i mean andy had had quite he'd He'd helped set up the Aldersgate group from um, pretty early days. So he had that experience. But, of course, it's quite a different kind of organisation. It's not... um, There there are lots of of valuable lessons from it, I suppose. Um, But, I mean, very different in its setting to kind of running outdoor camps and all of what that entails and getting insurance and <laughs> figuring out what your responsibilities for people are in that kind of outdoor setting. <laughs> um, but so no, we'd not set up anything like this before between us. Um, and did you, did you both, did you just sort of figure that out as you went along or did you, did you seek out some advice before you got started from other people who had done it before? We, a bit of a mix really we um in terms of you know setting it up as an organization i think we just figured that out we had a discussion about whether we wanted to be a business a social enterprise or a charity mm-hmm. and what that meant for us and why we might go for a different option and we ended up settling on being a community interest company mm-hmm. um which is another name for social enterprise basically for those who um don't follow different business structures um and so that whole side of things i suppose we just figured out we definitely sought advice on the question of you know what kind of insurance do you need for outdoor work how do you do a proper risk assessment um you know all of that kind of nitty-gritty to do with running a camp um we sought advice on that from the people who we'd been learning from in devon and um, in terms of pitching kind of what we are trying to do and seeing whether it appeals to people, we've done a mix of um, speaking to friends and colleagues and just getting their reactions, kind of getting a website up there, trying to describe what we were about, listening to them, whether it was coming across or not, and landing with them and refining as appropriate. And then we're still very much in that revision process. So we've just completed our second season now of running retreats. So it's much easier to tell a story now because we've got feedback from the, um, you know, I think it's about 120 or 130 people now who've been through one of one or other of the retreats we've run. Yeah. So, you know, all of their words coming together gives us a reasonable sense of what people are getting from um what we're offering so it's you know it's much easier to describe in that sense but it's a constant process of um of learning and refinement and of the whole project evolving and that's for me that's the real delight in it actually it's been i think previously i've been someone who has thought okay i need to get this absolutely right and um, really understand exactly, you know, 
I need to get it perfect and understand exactly what I'm offering and exactly how to describe it and um, kind of have a totally polished product before... Before anyone else sees it, right? <laughs> anyone else sees it. Yeah. And before daring to do it. Yeah. And this process with Change in Nature, I've kind of relaxed in that respect and just said... I know that there's something that I experienced in that national park in Namibia and there's something that I experienced on all the camps I ran in Devon that that really is right. I just know it and I'm going to trust it and I'm going to offer it and um, and the rest can follow the finding words for it and describing it to people and kind of exactly polishing what the what the offering out there is but just trusting that I've experienced something that was very powerful and just giving it a go and so my advice to people now wanting to set things up is just get something out there get yourself out there offer it and um, the learning process is so much richer once you're interacting with real people who you're trying to offer something to Mm. I think that's really good advice. I'm sure there are lots of young people or people in general out there who are in the environmental sector who might have a great idea, but or lots of great ideas, but who might... I know, I, I know I've certainly done this in the past, hold back because I've been afraid of not, not putting out into the world something that's perfect rather than just yeah. going with something that will probably do just as well and which can be adapted over time. Um, yeah, exactly, exactly. My advice is definitely go for it. Because there's a there's a sort of humility in it as well in the sense that, you know, the idea that you could come up with what's perfect on your own is actually a bit ridiculous in a way when you think <laughs> yeah. about it. Yeah. <laughs> like, much better to just throw something out there and then you'll get people's reactions. And some of them might say, mm, you know, that that didn't quite work and that's fine. And other people say, well, this thing was really good. And then you're suddenly tapping into this, like enormous web of group wisdom that helps you shape it and other people come along on your project with you you know they're as much a part of it as as you are in some ways you had the first kernel of a thought and Mm -hmm. put something out there but then it actually gets shaped and grows by all of the people who um participate in it as it evolves and so how in let's say in a couple of sentences or on a billboard, if you like, would you describe what change in nature does? Or <laughs> oh, <is>? no. <laughs> <laughs> I you'd ask me that, and this is what I'm working on at the moment, <laughs> trying to get it down to a couple of sentences. Um... Or more, if you need. And, I mean, uh, feel free, like, instead, maybe, maybe if you want to, because this was going to be my next question anyway, illustrate it by... By an example, so you say you've had sort of 120 people come, come on um, retreats with you. What, like, is there a particular one of those retreats where you could give a little bit of a flavour of what what people have experienced, or is there even one? I'm not asking you to name names, but is there one person who's had a particular experience that that stands out in your memory? Yeah. So I think fundamentally. Um, change in nature 
retreats offer people an opportunity to really like really unwind really let go of whatever it is that preoccupies them or makes them feel busy or stressed or distracted in their day-to-day lives um it helps them to really build much deeper levels of connection with other people who are on the retreat and with the natural world. Um, And they're also kind of very fun, playful um, experiences where people come away with a real sense of kind of... um, wonder and magic and having been part of something quite special so in contrast I suppose what some people unfortunately associate with the word retreat which is like a very earnest um heavy experience of maybe spending a lot of time sitting in the lotus position you know we (laughs) we (laughs) were light-hearted about it they're profound but light-hearted at the same time yeah um I think that's the general that's the general thing that people experience on all of our retreats but then each of our retreats has its own particular focus or theme so one that we ran a couple of times last year which people were really blown away by is called the deep time dive and we've collaborated with this amazing evolutionary uh, scientist called um Stefan Harding who has developed a 4.6-kilometre walk in which you walk out um, the history of life on on our planet because um, Earth is 4.6 billion years old. And it's this amazing journey, really, for people to really experience. There's something about walking it that really gives you a sense of perspective about how long humans have even been here and but also the absolutely incredible story about the evolution of life from there just being gases in the universe to single-celled organisms um you know to this sudden to the oceans shifting and receding and ice ages and just everything that's happened on our planet and um so the walk is the centerpiece really on the saturday but then we do a a range of different things kind of to help lead into that experience and then um to kind of play around with it and integrate it and to let it settle throughout the the rest of the weekend after the walk as well and on the saturday night for example we co-create a really special um banquet together where people kind of break off into different teams and uh do different things to you know some of them decorate the space and some people cook some food and um some people kind of go around and get people prepared to offer some entertainment and it all comes together in this really uh quite wonderful evening of celebration um around the fire and yeah, that retreat has been really, really powerful for people. Um, I've been, I've been trying out a process um, in the last couple of months of helping people to um, integrate 
what they experienced on retreat um, kind of back into their day-to-day lives once Mm -hmm. they're back in the city. And part of that has been um, having a monthly call with the people who were on the retreat and uh, setting ourselves a practice, a monthly practice um, that people bring into their day-to-day lives. And so I'm still in touch with the people now who came on that retreat two or three months on. And it's quite incredible to hear their stories of how that one weekend and kernel of inspiration um, has really fundamentally transformed their relationship with with the natural world around them. So one person who lives in London and has started going to Hampstead Heath now every day and sitting um, by a particular tree for 15 minutes a day, every day, um, and just being in that place. He says that he literally relates to trees on a completely different um, sort of level or plane of understanding to how he did previously. Previously, he realized that he was walking past them as if they were inanimate objects. Mm. Um and now he very much has the experience of sitting with another sentient being. Um, and is that bringing him? Is that bringing him some? I don't want to say benefit. That sounds so kind of um, you know utilitarian. But is that bringing some change to his days and his life as well? Yeah, I think it really is because imagine the difference between walking through a wood where fundamentally everything that you're walking past feels like an inanimate decorative object Mm. you know it's quite a good looking thing that's there it's sort of like walking through a department store of shiny things in some ways (laughs) or imagine the experience of walking through a wood where you're actually experiencing every single tree as um as a living sentient being that you're sharing the space with you know it brings the entire ecosystem alive on a completely different level and injects um injects a real sense of enchantment and magic back into your life where yeah you're part of this incredible living system where you know chemicals are being exchanged through the soil all the time and different species are relying on each other and there's this whole web of life going on that you might have been blind to before and it really is quite incredible the world that we live in we just forget it because it's become habitual (laughs) so to be able to regain that sense of wonder you know the sense of wonder that i experienced when i was five or six watching a tadpole turn into a frog and just be like whoa wow how is that happening that's incredible be completely enchanted by it to be able to recapture that as an adult i think is is very nourishing to um to the soul and to one's sense of well-being have you done this before that was beautifully done to take it circularly back to the the tadpole at the beginning <laughs> no i haven't i promise <laughs> <laughs> um, 
so I think I've just got a couple of questions left to finish with. The first one is I was just wondering how you get ready for the for the retreats that you do in these these experiences that you give give people both in a in a practical logistical sense but also in terms of getting yourself into the right kind of headspace or emotional space. Mm. Um yeah, the preparations are really important part actually. Um I always travel down to the sites that we run our retreats at um, at least a day before the retreat that we're running. Mm -hmm. Um, And Andy, my co-founder, does the same. So we tend to meet up there. And there's there's a practical side to that as well, which is that because our retreats are held in um, wild spaces that aren't pre-set up as camps, we need to be there a day before anyway to actually erect um, a whole camp ready to welcome people. Um, and, yeah, the lovely thing about that is that we can really hold the retreats in wilder places where there is still a lot of wildlife and we kind of pop up and then disappear um, after the retreat and the wildlife can return without feeling like it's a very human-occupied space. So that's one element of the preparation is very practical. Um, it's building sheltered spaces and fetching water from the stream and starting to boil it on the fire and uh, putting up some solar lights and so on. Um, and then in terms of the kind of emotional preparation, I think it's really important that we're down there the day before as well because it gives us a chance to switch off our phones um, you know, be in a space that doesn't have electricity for 24 hours, to sit around the fire and really feel ourselves kind of unwind and um, reground, I suppose. And we we do quite a lovely thing, um, which is that the night before retreat starting, we when we're sitting around the fire, we think about all of the people who were there having their last night in their beds, in their familiar homes, um, and who maybe are coming to a retreat with, you know, different um, different expectations or maybe a few niggles or worries or a bit of excitement or all kinds of different feelings about this unknown space that they're going to go into. Mm. And we just sort of bring them to mind and recognize that, think about them preparing and how the next day they're going to be picking up their bags and getting on the train and coming to where we are from all these different corners of the UK. And we just, um, I suppose we set intentions for what we hope that their experience will be. So we voice them um, sitting around the fire with each other. And I think it's a really great way for both of us to remind ourselves of why we're doing what we're doing and um, come at it from the angle of the people who are going to be arriving. So really think about what we want the experience to be for them. And, yeah, it gives us a chance to kind of put ourselves in their shoes. Mm. And, and, and do, you, yeah. do, do you know lots about each of the people who are coming or will the, will the morning or whatever when you, when you meet them for the first time be when you start learning about their, their background? Generally, the only thing we tend to know is um, 
their name and maybe where we're coming from because we've helped them with the transport side of things Mm -hmm. so we don't ask for too much personal information up front about what people's jobs are or what their circumstances are um so no I guess we're kind of imagining them in a in a fairly creative sense we can't literally you know go through each one and think how they might each be feeling but we're just imagining lots of people who we have names for who we haven't put a face to yet and um yeah voicing our our intention for what we hope that they will experience and I think that's a really essential part of the preparation because it means that when we greet them up at the gate and they all are disembarking from their you know shared taxis or whichever way they've made their way there um we're already in a really really settled um place and have already spent that time um, connecting with the site ourselves so we're really able to welcome them in a very uh, genuine way I suppose because we already feel settled in and I think that's quite important when people have maybe had a bit of an, a hectic journey or have come from a stressful office for them to arrive and be met immediately by people who are feeling really grounded and calm and settled in. And are you are you using the same site quite regularly or is it often a new site that you haven't been to before? There's one site that we use a lot um, on Dartmoor just because it's it's absolutely exquisite. It's just got these incredible ancient beech trees that look like old elephants somehow. They're just the bark is like an elephant's skin and they're enormous, um, and it, the land has got a really beautiful aspect. It's kind of, it's on a hill, so you get beautiful um, horizons that you can look out over and a good sense of perspective and everything, and at the bottom of the hill, there's a stream that runs through the woodland that we fetch all the water from, so yeah, it's, it's just a really magical um, site with kind of very big open clearings, and then also um these big ancient woodlands that are kind of like being in a a nature cathedral so we tend to use that site quite a lot but not exclusively we try and use other sites that are closer um to london as well to make it a bit more accessible for those who feel maybe that dartmoor is a bit far right I guess, though, even if it's a site which you've used a few times before for yourself, you know, you're not <laughs> you're not living on Dartmoor day in, day out. So it can take you it could take a while to resettle into the space, as you say. So going there a bit early before the other people arrive is it's important to have that extra time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, that brings us back nicely to trees again, which we spoke about at the start as well. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I think, I think the last question that I wanted to ask was about whether or not you have any particular hopes about what people's experiences through change in nature of the environment will mean for the environment and for their relationship with it, or even for the protection with it, the protection of it, or whether you don't really have any particular hopes or expectations around that. Yeah, so um, I think the the way that I've been seeing what we're trying to do through change in nature, um, and I've kind of summed it up in 
uh, four words um, on our on our website as well is um, unwind, reconnect, and come alive. And I think what we're really what we're really hoping to help people to do is firstly just to come whoever they are come into this natural space and just unwind because we're really aware that people have hugely busy lives these days people are under a lot of stress um quite a lot of people are sleep deprived it's kind of quite a hectic environment that a lot of us are exposed to a lot of the time and i've been reading into um a fair amount of research that shows that people who are busy and stressed and sleep deprived are less likely to behave um, in a way that's compassionate or that shows moral awareness. Hmm. Um, I, sorry, I don't want to throw you off course, but that's really interesting because I think one thing we didn't really delve into very much so far is how our lack of connectedness to nature is bad for us as well. So that's really interesting. Yeah, exactly. And I think... So there's increasing research that shows that um, being in nature is actually uniquely restorative to the human mind. Um, we seem to be able to sort of achieve um, a, a state of alertness and attentiveness that's very soft focus in nature, which actually allows our mind to rest. Whereas in urban environments, we tend to be very overstimulated by um, all sorts of different sounds and sights and um, it, it keeps us kind of constantly working very hard at a mental level and so yeah so the first thing that that we try and do is just really bring people into that natural space and allow them to just open up and unwind and kind of go ah and let it all go and I think that in itself you know, will help re-equip people to go back into whatever it is that they do and to be able to operate more effectively. So we hope that that will have some kind of knock-on impact in and of itself. You know, if you're an environmental campaigner who has been working really hard and who lives a very busy life, um, you know, primarily based in an urban space and you just feel a bit kind of exhausted or burnt out, coming into one of the retreats that we run will really help you to re-energize and then go back out into the world and what you do kind of feeling a lot more resilient and able to to do things effectively so that's sort of the first part I suppose and then um and then we really aside from that we really try and help people to reconnect um both with each other so this is something that I think we were talking about earlier in the in the interview, which is about people's capacity to connect at a much deeper level when they're sitting around a fire in a very undistracted um, environment where they don't have all their phone notifications going off all the time. Um, and also to reconnect with the land. And for me, these two things are absolutely fundamental to... Um, helping us to be able to protect the environment more effectively. Firstly, connecting with each other, you know, we are part of nature and a lot of the challenges that we face environmentally are because we've, in various ways, kind of pitched ourselves against it. But 
but we do have genuine resource needs. And so I think understanding, being able to connect to each other more deeply and really understand what each other's resource needs are um, is is a really key part of us cracking the problems that we have to really understand where each other's coming from. Mm. And also just on a more basic level, I suppose, people coming into the retreats build very deep connections with each other. So when we run retreats just for environmental professionals, they go away with a really, um, really solid network of peers who they can pick up the phone to and, um, you know, just feel a much greater ease to, to call on each other after they've shared in that kind of experience. Right. Um, but yeah, the, the reconnection, reconnection with the, with the land and seeing ourselves as part of it is a really key thing as well. And I just wanted to, um, read you a really short, um, quote by Aldo Leopold from his book, A Sand County Almanac, which I think brings this out quite beautifully. That's the second time he's come <laughs> up in the last couple of podcasts, actually. It's what it's one of my two favourite conservation books, I think, or native yeah. books. It's it's amazing. <laughs> it's such a beautiful book. Um but yeah he says just in the in in the introduction to the book, he says we abuse land because we regard it as a commodity belonging to us. When we see land as a community to which we belong, we may begin to use it with love and respect. There is no other way for land to survive the impact of mechanised man. Perhaps such a shift of values can be achieved by reappraising things unnatural, tame and confined in terms of things natural, wild and free. And so a lot of what we do on the retreats is essentially finding ways to help people to see themselves as part of a community of the land and, and have a real sense of belonging within the ecosystem um, and not just seeing it as, you know, oh, it's nice and aesthetically pleasing, this nature thing, but essentially it's a pile of resources for me to utilise, but to really begin to relate to it as um, a very complex ecological system of which we are one species mm. um and then the the third thing is this thing about helping people to um come alive and it kind of it kind of relates to the first point about unwinding and helping people to re-energize but it's more than that really it's I think a lot of the things that we do on our retreats and a really great example of this is the deep time walk that we do with um, Stefan Harding it's it's really about helping people to access and reignite a sense of kind of wonder enchantment and beauty um, that perhaps they felt as a child and that has become a bit more dull as they've moved into adult life and I think it's it's that emotional stuff that emotional connection that is such an incredible fuel um, for people's motivation to to do anything to protect our environment. It's, you know, anger and frustration and um, these other emotions, I feel like they only get you so far. They're very useful in short bursts to kind of go out and be like, no, you can't cut this down and, um, you know, to really get out there onto the front lines and try and protect things. Yeah. But you need a bedrock of just 
an immense feeling of wonder and love and beauty and enchantment about the world to sustain you through all of those difficult battles um, that we have to have. And so I suppose a lot of, again, a lot of what we try and do is um, nurture that that part and those feelings of people in people and give them that fuel that will sustain them um, and help them to go out and and do what they do. Um, yeah, so that's that's really the model of what we try and do through Change in Nature retreats. And it's a shift for me from working very much at a kind of policy level where my primary focus was on setting constraints to people's behavior in various ways um, or setting constraints on the market and setting carbon caps or it was all about kind of creating a box within within which things could take place Mm. and trying to set limits Um, and this is really a lot more about moving to the the other end of the spectrum of just trying to fire something up in people and hopefully unleash a huge amount of extra um, human passion and energy that I think will be directed towards protecting this amazing world that we live in. And you never know who's going to come on retreats. That's the thing. It's, you know, some people may go back and make some changes in their personal lives, but and you know, and that'll be the extent of it, and that's great as well. But other people who come may be in real positions of influence where they're able to change things at a much bigger scale. And so that really excites me too. And there's a there's an anecdote that I've heard about um John Muir, the famous Scottish conservationist, taking um Theodore Roosevelt out on a camping trip to Yosemite um just after he'd become president and apparently it was a three-day camping trip with the two of them just spending time immersed in that incredible place and apparently it was one of the big I mean I think Roosevelt was was quite motivated in terms of conservation anyway but that was a very pivotal experience that um he he had um so yeah that was you know amazing if you can connect someone at that level of influence who has those levers to pull on um hopefully the change can be quite significant your your quote from sand county almanac as well i can actually see the book sitting on my bookshelf from from where i am um there's another fantastic bit in it uh about that deep time thing where he writes about uh the cranes that are standing kind of on the the layers of peter like the pages of history beneath their feet um, yeah. i just think it's such an incredible book for so many different little bits that you can pull out and in so many different ways i yeah i really think i really think people should go and read that book if they haven't already so if people if people want to come on your retreats then we'll find out a little bit more about that in a moment but in addition if people are looking to get that sense of wonder and enchantment back into their lives what other things could they do right now or tomorrow to to try and bring that back and perhaps smaller things as well that are that are simple to introduce Mm. I mean a really simple 
um, really simple practice is just to pick one spot in nature um, and it doesn't need to be, you know, some pristine, amazing natural environment somewhere. It can just be literally, you know, sitting under your nearest tree or if you've got a garden in a garden um, and just visiting that place every day for you know ideally sort of 20 30 minutes but if you can't manage that then maybe just 10 take a cup of tea and sit there and it sounds like quite a straightforward and even potentially boring to some people um practice but it's incredible if you do it with consistency what what it yields in terms of seeing every single day what happens in one place and which other creatures come there and um, what they get up to and watching the change through the seasons. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's just a, a really beautiful way of trying to anchor yourself to the fact that you're part of a much bigger system than just the urban environment that dominates for a lot of people. So that's a very lovely, simple thing. And then within that, I guess, you know, depends where your curiosity takes you. You can start, there might be particular birds that you hear over and over and over again. So it might be a, a nice thing to try and actually start figuring out which birds are, are making each call and finding out a bit more about them. Or if it's a particular tree that you're sitting by, um, you know, look into a bit more about that tree or read a couple of books about, there's some really fascinating new books that have come out recently about um, how trees are communicating with each other through fungal networks in the soil. So it could be a good idea to read a book like that. And so when you're with your tree, you're kind of imagining all of that going on. Great. Okay. I think that's a really good, really, really good note to end on. Um, unless there's anything else that you'd like to say or anything that I haven't asked about that you'd like to talk about? No, I think that about covers it. That was amazing. Thank you. That was <laughs> really incredible. You're, uh, I mean, I'm sure the training that you've been through it, has, it plays a role in it, but you're such an incredible storyteller. <laughs> Thank you very much. That was really good. Um, where can people where can people find out more about change in nature and what should they look out for that's coming up that they might be interested in? Yes, yeah, so the best things to check our website, um, which is changeinnature.org. And um, we've got our 2018 dates up there already. Um, there'll be more to come, but we've got some of the, the basics up there and um yeah just take a look see what we're up to and get in touch and we also I should say as well as the kind of uh set piece retreats that we um that we offer we also work with different individuals and organizations to create and run things that are more tailored to their organizational needs so for example where in conversation with um, a couple of businesses and with a couple of um, university master's departments um, about creating bespoke 
um, bespoke experiences for groups that they would bring to us of, you know, between 10 and 30 people. So that's if that's of interest to anyone listening as well, then just get in touch and we can have a conversation and put something together. Great. Thanks. I'll put all that in the in the notes that accompany the episode and on social media as well. Cool. Um, can I just ask one small favour? Um, if you've got yep. a photo of you outdoors or just a photo related to change in nature that I can use on social media when I post this episode, that would be really great if you'd be able to email mm-hmm. something across. Mm-hmm. Um, and otherwise, yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to do that. Um, and I hope you, you and your growing family have a really good Christmas. Yeah, thank you. And thanks... Um... Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me to speak on your podcast. It's great. It's the first podcast episode I've ever done. Oh, I'm glad about that. (laughs) I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. And you can find more of them at wildvoicesproject.org by subscribing to the podcast in iTunes or at wildvoicesproj on Twitter. Take care and until next time.